Good morning, good afternoon or good evening, wherever you are in the world when you listen to this and welcome to another episode of the Cathedral of Sport podcast, hosted by myself, Ash, my co-host Bob, not with me again this time, I haven't got a clue what he's up to, to be honest, but he will be back on the show with me very soon. Right, what have I got in store for you? Well, I've got a very, very special guest joining me on the show, a man who lit up the football pitch every time he left the tunnel with his flair, pace, trickery and outrageous goals, a true South Indian United legend. Birmingham and Orient fans will probably second that as well. Ladies and gents, I'm delighted to be joined by none other than Ricky Otto. Ricky, thank you so much for agreeing to give me your time. How are you and how has life been treating you lately? I know it's been a tough year. Well, thank you for having me, Ash. Um, it's an absolute pleasure to, to, to be talking to you and, you know, just uh, really just uh, looking over my career at Southend. How am I? Well, yeah, as you know, it's been a difficult 2020, it's been horrendous for everybody. Everybody's been impacted uh, by this coronavirus. And for myself and my family, we've been hit very hard. We've had five five really close um, people that have passed away. In June, I had to officiate my dad's funeral. So, uh, you know, it doesn't get any worse than that. But, you know, we're still standing. We're still trying to stay positive and really just kind of just look forward to a better 2021, hopefully. Yeah, definitely. Uh, condolences to you and, your, and the family, by the way, mate. Um, look, it's, it's an awful, that's awful news to hear. Yeah, uh, it's a, it's a, my co-host has known about five people as well that have been affected by it and, and, and passed away. So, yeah, it's been awful. It's been terrible. Hopefully there is some light at the end of the tunnel now and um, we can get back to some sort of normality, hopefully oh. in, the, in the very near future. Um, Ricky, I'm going to go right back to where it began, mate. I'll just... Just tell us a bit about where you grew up. I, I do this for all my listeners. Um, it's about, you know, where you grew up and your introduction into the game, where you learned your craft, so to speak. Yeah, well, I grew up in a place called Hackney, East London. Um, very um, notorious for, for crime and poverty. Um, so I grew up in Hackney and my first memories of playing football, I was probably about seven years of age, playing for my, my primary school. And then by the time I was nine years of age, I was playing for... Hackney District, um, and then I went on by 10 years of age to play for uh, in a London. At 11 years of age, I was at West Ham Schoolboys, then I moved to Tottenham Schoolboys. And so my pedigree in football um, was quite good, to be fair, because I grew up and I was playing against the likes of Paul Ince, Vinnie Samways, David Rollcastle, Mickey Thomas, Merson Adams, because I was playing against all those guys in district football. Um, so my pedigree was quite good, but obviously growing up in Hackney, I always say um, in those pivotal years growing up, going to school, there's only two ways you can really go. You either stay in school and study and go into college or you kind of get kicked out of mainstream school like myself. And then you start hanging around with like minded people. And, you know, when you've got time on your hands, um, you know, you tend to get up to mischief. And that was the way I went. I mean, I grew up in a single parent family. I'm the got two brothers. I'm the middle child, uh, so uh, you know I've got that kind of middle child syndrome. You know, you never got any new clothes. You've always got the hand me downs, and the younger child always got spoiled. So I was just caught in the middle. So um, yeah, growing up, uh, although it was good, my mum raised us well. Very tough, very strict. But when I got to about the age of fourteen. Um, because I didn't have no father figure or anyone that can guide me in the right direction towards football. At that age, I still didn't know how you made a living out of football. So 
at 14, you know, when you're, you know, starting to want nice trainers, nice clothes, you want to impress the girls and you go in youth club, training just became boring. Um, and so I left football kind of just to hang around on the streets and just uh, have fun. And so that's how I ended up getting into a life of crime um, and, you know, finally making my way back round to football many years later. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, no, 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 you carry on, Ricky. Yeah, so, um, like I said, it, it, it was just, you know, those those years between 14 and 19 years of age were probably my most turbulent years because, um, again, you know, I was just a law unto myself, you know, getting mixed up in crime uh, because you want money, um, but I'm too young to sign in at the door. I'm not working. And so, you know, it wasn't long before some of the older guys kind of just said to me and my friend one day to just look out for them. Uh, I figured out now that they were doing a burglary and they just wanted us to look out for them. When they came back, they, they gave us £120. And for me, that was it. I was hooked, line and sinkered. And I just believed that, you know, I'm going to continue to make easy money like this, committing crime. Um, and I just spiralled into that lifestyle very quickly. Um, and like I said, if you're on street, hanging around on street, not going to college or working, it's only a matter of time before you're going to come into contact with the police. And that was the case. And so after numerous appearances in court, I received my first prison sentence at the age of 17. And then it just spiraled out of control um, until my last sentence, uh, which I got, which was four years um, for two robberies. And so I went in prison at 19 and came out at 22. Ricky, um, I I grew up around similar lads to yourself. Um, a lot of us didn't have our dads around either, but me as well. Um, I had to be brought up by my nan and granddad um, for, for quite a few years. Um, that's how that's where the South End connection comes in. I actually grew up in Streatham, um, South London, sort of not as not as notorious as Hackney, but sort of next to Brixton, sort of similar, all similar people, all similar characters. You know, you know how it is. Um, I totally understand that. I, I, I get it. You know, a lot of people will get that as well. Um, but you, 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 you came out of prison um, and you signed for Leighton Orient, didn't you? Yeah. Um, and, and just for the record, listen, man, Streatham was high up there. Don't you worry about that in terms of uh, people that some of my best friends came from, you know, Brixton, Streatham, Tulse Hill. So, yeah, you know, that kind of lifestyle in the urban communities, man, it's just, uh, you know, the fit survives and sometimes by any means necessary. But yeah, I came out of um, prison in 1990 and it was funny because in all the, I've been in prison five times, but the first four times I went to prison, I was obviously in youth, young offenders institutions because I was under the age of 21. Um, and the thing about being amongst your own age group sometime is that because of the reputation I had, you know, amongst your own age group, they're not trying to inspire you to, to do better in your life because most people want to keep you close to them you know, because I had a reputation and so people kind of, you know, wanted to be around me because they can, you know, commit crime or just get away with, with, with things. So regularly when I was incarcerated, I used to play for the prison officers uh, because once they saw my ability to play football, I just remember one day just lying down in my cell Saturday afternoon and then the prison officers just opened my door and just said, follow him. And, you know, obviously I'm saying, well, where am I going? What have I done? You know, and he just told me to follow him. Next thing I know, you know, I was walking out of the prison, jumping into a van, and then I'm just like surrounded by all prison officers telling me that I'm coming to play football in the, the local town centre. So my, 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 my prison experience was, uh, it was kind of funny. 
because although I was incarcerated, I was kind of well respected by the prison officers. But it was only to my last sentence when I was doing my four years and I served that in adult prison. And what happens when you go to another prison, when you go in the evening to do gym, because, you know, people love offenders. They love to play football uh, in the evening at gym. And so normally when you go there, if no one don't know you, you kind of get picked last. And it's always the same case where they would ask you, can you play football, mate? And I would normally just say, well, yeah, I'm all right. You know, nothing, nothing brilliant. And then soon as um, it was my team to go on now, I don't know if you've ever remembered the, the Benny Hill uh, programme. And every every now and then that old ball-head man will come into the programme and the programme will speed up. And that's how it was for me. As soon as I got the ball, I would just do one or two trickery and bang, score a goal. And then everyone would just be shocked. And so most prisons I went into, most people would know me as being the baller. So when I'd done the same thing in the adult prison, two days later, two guys came to my cell saying they wanted to talk to me. Now, Ash, when two guys come to your cell, and this time I'm in adult prison now, Wandsworth was the worst prison in Europe at the time. And when two guys come to your cell and say they want to talk to you, you start preparing for the worst. And so when they came into my cell, they say, listen, mate, you're taking liberties. I'm not going to use the obvious choice words they use, but in effect, they were saying you're taking liberties, bro. And I mean, I said, what, what do you mean I'm taking liberties? They say, bruv, you're taking liberties. I says, well, why? Who are you? I don't even know you. And then they said, bruv, we was in the gym a couple of days ago and saw you play football. What are you doing here? And so I kind of was going to maybe just give them a little cheeky kind of a, you know, a smug answer. And then they kind of said, listen, bruv, we're, not, we're serious, man. What are you doing here? And they ended up giving me a good kick up the backside in terms of telling me that I can play football. Now, the thing, Ash, I, I knew I could play football, but... Without a father, without someone who showed that much interest in my ability, sometimes you need that affirmation. And I never got that affirmation. And when I was in the Young Offenders Institutions, you're not going to have your same age group trying to get you to prosper in life. They want to keep you with them. But in adult prison, it was completely different because these two guys, one was doing 17 years, the other one was doing 24 years. And they were saying to me, if they had the talent that they saw me produce in the gym, they would never be sitting in prison. They, they said they wouldn't even have friends. It would just be them, the ball and the park. And so they left me with this saying, and I, and I use it now when I work with offenders. They said, listen, mate, if I was you, don't serve the time. Let the time serve you. And what they meant by that is don't just sit down in prison and do nothing. And, and only when you get released, start thinking about what you want to do in life. Start preparing yourself now. Start preparing yourself physically, mentally. You know, there's a gym. Use the gym, play as much football as you can. And, and one of them worked in the kitchen, so they was able to get me some decent food uh, from the kitchen. And that's what I'd done. I became a gym orderly, and that was the only advice I needed. That was the affirmation that I needed uh, from an adult. And that was the first time any male role model spoke into my life. And like I said, I became a gym orderly, and every morning, noon, and night, I was playing football, just preparing myself for that opportunity. And so... When I came out on, on the 25th of January, 1990, I knew all I had to do is not to hang around with certain people as often, not go to certain pool cafes of us, uh, as often, because if police see you around the afternoon in these kind of environments, then they know or they perceive that you're up to no good. So I had to kind of navigate that road because in my mind, if I can stay on the street long enough to wait for the opportunity to come, then I believed and I, I can turn my life around. And, and that's what I've done. I came out in 1990 and by October, 
of that year, I signed my first professional contract for Leighton Orient. It's a, an absolutely incredible story, that, Ricky. Um, just touching back on the, the, the two guys that came to sell, whoever those two guys were, um, thank you. Thank you, <laughs> because... <laughs> especially for especially for someone like me who got idolised the way you played and that I would maybe I never have got, I would have maybe I never have got to see you maybe no one would have you know on, on the football pitch you know uh, it's amazing how how someone can just just say one thing to you yeah. and then bang you know the mentality changes and you and you want to progress and like it's it life's mad it is it's crazy um so you signed for you signed for late and Orient so like when you got out that's that's amazing you get yourself ticking over. In jail by playing football, um, playing for the, the the prison wardens and that's uh, their team and stuff like that. So they kept you ticking over nicely, so to speak. So you weren't just sat there and, and, and you know letting your letting your talent go away. At least you could still have the ball at your feet. Uh, um, in in retrospect, really, absolutely. I mean, in certain institutions, um, I was playing football on Saturday on Sunday. The prison officers tend to play on Saturday afternoons, and then the prison had a football team. So other teams will come into the prison on Sunday mornings and so that was a regular occurrence for me plus every evening after work you can go to the gym from six o'clock to nine so every evening I was going gym and and during the daytime when other other wings would go and do gym in the afternoon um, I would play with them so like I said I was regularly in the gym um, that was just my norm and, and especially when I got the gym orderly job because it meant I was in the gym most days every day so, yeah, that kind of kept me ticking over. But again, you've got to remember that my football pedigree was good. So I wasn't your, I knew I wasn't your average player. I knew I was probably better than the majority because from nine years of age, I was coming in the Hackney Gazette every week. I was playing for London. You know, I was at the professional club. So it wasn't no surprise to most people. And definitely for me, playing football, it wasn't hard work. The hardest thing for me to do was to discipline myself and to really change that mindset. And Oftentimes, you know, oftentimes I thought about those two guys. Uh, I've often thought, man, if I can just remember their names, you know, then I would just put a shout out on, 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 on television or somewhere after a live game, just so that I can meet them, just so that I can do what you've done, Ash, and just say thank you, because literally that was the turning point for me. Yeah, um, totally. Um, it's just such an incredible story. You just got it's got me like hooked right in there. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> um, Leighton Orient, how was it? How was it there, Ricky? Um, three years there. Um, so you, you spent a while there. Yeah, it was it, honestly. Um, if ever there was the easiest and the nicest way to ease into professional football, it, it was Leighton Orient because again, remember that's like our local club. You know, I used to play on the marshes for years. In fact, when we were younger, a couple of times we used to bunk in to Leighton Orient and see football matches. So for me, being able to kind of get into professional football where I didn't have to relocate, you know, I can still be around familiar surroundings because that helps in my transition um, into football. And the guys that were there were phenomenal. One of the guys that was there, a player named Danny Carter, well, he knew me anyway, when we used to play for Albion on Saturday mornings and he went to the same school as a lot of my cousins. So I kind of feel like when I came and he saw me, it was the kind of uh, person that I needed to see at the right time to ease me in. But I, I, I kid you not, you know, some of the players that I played with there, uh, you know, Steve Castle, Terry Howard, uh, Kenny Atchampong, Wayne Burnett, 
um, Chris Bart William, all of them, we were young and hungry just to make a name for ourselves in football. And none of them judged me. Peter Eustace and Frank Clark, you know, at that time, you just needed someone to kind of look past your your criminal past and just zone in on on the talent. And, and I'm thankful and grateful that they were able to do that because, uh, you know, again, 1990, 30 years ago, you know, black players wasn't coming into football at the rate it is now. And then with the criminal record that I had, it, you know, I needed someone who could kind of look past my misdemeanours. And Frank Clark and Peter Eustace done that. And so, you know, coming into professional football, it was good. I was in the reserves for seven months. So I had a good kind of, uh, you know, time to kind of just settle in, learn the game and, and just like, hone in my skills and get fitter. And like I said, my experience there for two and a half, nearly three years, um, it couldn't have gone better. Couldn't have gone better. Oh, that's, do you know what? Right, there's, there's always light at the end of the tunnel, isn't yeah. there? And you going through all that and then getting that at the end of it, you, you know, you clearly deserved it. It was clearly meant to be. But now I'm going to go into my, my personal favourite part here. Right. <laughs> After three years at Orient, uh, a good three years at Orient, you signed for the Mighty Shrimpers in 1993. How did the transfer come about? And what, what attracted you to the Blues? Well, funny enough, you know what it was? <clears throat> While I was at Orient, after about two years, Coventry City came in for me. And so I, I travelled uh, to Coventry City to sign. Um, but I turned down the move because when I got there, Bobby Gold, who was the manager at the time, he was well known for trying to get players on the cheap. And so, you know, I went to Coventry City. Coventry City has been in the top league for 25 years. And, and the money that they offered me was derisory. I mean, it was absolutely derisory. I felt myself getting angry. Do you know what I mean? Because you're just wasting my time. Because, you know, for me to sign for Coventry, it, it would meant I, ha I would have had to relocate. And the money they was offering, I couldn't even get a mortgage. You know, so, uh, you know, I, I, I was disappointed. So I turned down the move and I came back to Orient and just played for an extra season. But I remember the game that did it was when we played, um, the reserves played in a London Cup final against Barnet. And I played in that game and scored a hat-trick. And Barry Fry was there with Edwin Steen and David Howell. And straight after that game, literally within about a week, because that was the last game the season had finished, straight after about a week, I just got a phone call uh, that Southend wanted to sign me. Now, at the time, Southend was in the old first division. Orient was in the second division. So I thought to myself, well, you know, I'd heard a little bit about Barry Fry. I heard that he, you know, he, 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 he was a kind of a player's manager, you know, obviously doing his, 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 his work in the uh, lower leagues. A lot of people... Uh, got the opportunity to come into professional football. So I, I heard good things in terms of playing for him. It can put you on a better platform. And so for me, it was just a natural progression because I felt that I'd done what I could do at Leighton Orient um, and I just needed a bigger platform. And Southend, they offered me that platform. So when I got the call, you know, I travelled down to Southend. I was, you know, the money was right. But it wasn't just the money. But when I got there, because on the same day, I think there was must have been about 11 players that Barry Fry signed and I knew a few of them so I kind of knew before I even signed if these guys are signing boy that this could be a this could be a good journey because you know I knew about four or five of them and you know the, the camaraderie before we even signed the contract I was excited so when I went to negotiate it didn't take too long because I was sold 
um, because I just felt that something's going something's gonna to happen at this small club that, you know, you know um, and that was it. I signed. Um, and honestly, man, it was just, a, it was a, it went too quick if you ask me personally, because from day one, something magical just happened, man. You know, all the players, we just bonded. We just got on. I mean, we were excited to get into training every day and it just gelled. You, you know, you can't put your finger on it, but we just clicked and it just worked. Yeah. I mean, that 93-94 season was probably the best I've, well, well, the best I, I would say that I can ever remember. Um, it was, a, it was a, 93 was the year I was introduced to Southend by my nan. She's, she was originally from Southend. Uh, moved to moved to London in her in her twenties and uh, met my granddad who'd come over from from Jamaica um, and then they obviously set up a life in Streatham um, and she put me in, a t- in front of the telly one day and my uncle used to try and get me to support QPR when I was a kid but I, don't, I weren't really <laughs> having it I weren't really feeling it and uh, she's like and, and my nan didn't really really watch the football that much do you know what I mean she was a fan. Um, a lifelong Southend fan. She, she used to go when she was a kid. Her dad used to take on all that. Wow. So she, she always used to, you know, look out for the results. And if Southend were on the telly, she But she sat me down. She said, I've got to come and see this. Because I was hyper. I was always like running about the house, kicking like football around, whatever I could do, you know. So um, she said, come and sit down. What's it? And it pointed at you straight away. And from that, on, from that day on, I was hooked, right? Watching that team. I was hooked. You, Chris Powell, Tommy Mooney, Jason Lee, Brett Angel. You know, I was just like, wow. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, my nan, my nan, because we lived in Stratford, couldn't really afford to take me unless we went to see my cousins in Southend. Then that, that was the only opportunity I got to be able to go. But it's it's probably my, my biggest thing in life of regret that in that season, I never actually got to see you or any of you live play, but I got to see you on the telly. So that's, that's how I uh, wow. remember. Um, yeah, so you're making a black man yeah. blush, man. Um, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's, it's 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 great memories for me as well. Do you know what I mean? Because that's my introduction to the club. That was about you. You were my introduction to the club. You and and, and those players I've just mentioned as well. Um, were all, all, all played their part to my introduction to the club. What was well, I don't know, Barry Fry lit up my TV all the time as well. I mean, it, always you see him running up and down a touchline yeah. and. All sorts when a goal went in, you know. But what was what was he like behind that? What was he like behind all the uh, all the, the singing and dancing on the touchline and, and running the length of the pitch? Listen, Barry Fry is a character. What you see is what you get. There's 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 no there's no filters. As you saw him on the touchline, that's how it was in real life. He he loved football. Um, he loved you know the players that he brought in. He believed in them, and so. He really gave us the opportunity to express ourselves. Um, you know, I've played for some managers and sometimes you can go into training, Ash, and the training's boring, man, because it's so technical. You pass here, run there, do it there, come back. And But with Barry Fry, obviously we'd work on some of the opponents. We'd look on their weaknesses and then we'll just go into a full-blown game. And then after that, it's just five aside because he just really believed in us. And like I said, um, you can do a lot with momentum. I remember when, when Leicester won the league, I was telling people in my barbershop, listen, at Christmas, I was telling them Leicester's winning the league. And they was all like berating me, telling me I don't know what I'm talking about. But I had to share with them. I said, listen, when a team gets momentum, that is a force that is almost unstoppable. And when I was looking at Leicester, it reminded me of when we was at Southend. Because if you remember, 
by the time Barry Fry left, we were third in the first division and teams didn't want to come to Roots Hall. And we were going to other teams and we were bullying them. We would, we would walk into the changing room, turn on the boombox and walk around the place like we owned it. I mean, we was cocky. We was boisterous. And, and I think that just shook everybody. And when we got onto the pitch, it just worked. And so I think a lot of that, it happens when, when you've got a manager that believes in you. Barry used to just say to us, listen, I bought you here because I think you can play football. Go out there and go and play, mate. Literally, you know. But he was a character that it kind of, it, it worked with the bunch of players that we had. I mean, there were sometimes you, you look at Baz and you think, Baz, what are you doing, man? Because we'll be sitting down in a hotel and he'll be banging his knife and fork. Why are we waiting? Why are we waiting for the dinner? And we're like, Baz, <laughs> you're the manager, man. Shut up, man. But it worked, you know, because everyone respected him. Everyone, I think at the time, I don't know why, Ash, but for some bizarre reason, it was like a lot of us were considered problem players. I don't know why, because we didn't give no one problems. But, you know, if I think at that time, if you had an opinion to certain managers, you know, that want yes players, we were considered a problem, but we wasn't. And Baz will verify, we didn't give him no problem. We was always on time for training. We was always on time when we had to travel. Every time we travelled away, there was nothing bad that happened to anyone. We, we represented the club very well. But again, I think working under Baz, you just knew what you was going to get. You're going to get a manager that believes in you and he wants you to go out there and do your best. And so, you know, and sometimes it, it's like you weren't even playing for a manager. It was more like, you know, your friend, you, you know. Um, but it worked, again, because I think his character, that was the trigger that allowed everybody else to express themselves. And I think if you look back to that season, the kit man was expressing himself. The ladies that used to cook our food after training, they were expressing, everyone was expressing themselves because it was just a phenomenal time for South End because, you know, we were considered uh, a small team, a small club, but the likes of Sunderland, you know, the likes of Millwall, you know, we, we battered those teams, you know, all, all those big teams, we, we, we battered them, Middlesbrough. Uh, you, you, you know, Crystal Palace was frightened of us. You know, we drew at Nottingham. They were frightened of us. And and so I think a lot of that is down to Barry Fry and the, the, the changing room that he created with his character, with Edwin Steen's character, with David Howell's character. And it just spiralled onto the, to the players. And like I says, um, no one wanted to play us at the time because we were buzzing, man. We, you know, like I says, we were coming into training like an hour before training started. That's how much we just wanted to be around each other. And it was great. Yeah, that that era um, for me. I mean, I, I'm going to say I'm extend it a bit. Ninety two and ninety five because uh, I was Stan Collymore was there the year That's before. Correct, yeah. Um, yeah. But you know that 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 era, that whole era then was just it's, it's just an incredible time to. And I, I was so lucky that I <laughs> I actually caught you guys. You know what I mean at the right time, and that's how I got into the club. That's how. You know, if if it wasn't for Minan, then maybe maybe we wouldn't be having this conversation. You know, so look, what are the, some of the characters I can address from him, like uh, Brett Angel and people like that, because he's another he's another one of mine that I've a, a bit of a hero of mine. You know, Brett Angel. He... <laughs> <laughs> Brett Angel. He he had a funny kind of a character, but again, it worked because uh, he he I believe he was a Northerner. Was he a Northerner? He came from somewhere, but he had this funny accent. It might not have been, it could have been Bristol, I think, somewhere around there, but he had, he had a funny accent. And so he used to get a lot of banter, but he used to give it as well. Um, 
but everyone had their own personal. I mean, us, even people that was on the bench and those in the reserves, even they were a part of it, you know. Um, but there were some big characters, some big characters. Because remember, there was Derek Payne. You know what I mean? He's five foot nothing, but character, character on the pitch. And again, people like Pauli, Andy Ansar, you know, Jason Lee. Um, we had some big characters, Paul Sampson. You know, every one of us had character. And again, because you're looking at Barry, you're looking at Edwin, you're looking at David Howes and the coaching side. Listen, you had to be able to take banter because if you couldn't, you're in the wrong environment. You will crumble. And so everyone gave as good as they got. And so even Brett, you know, he was a phenomenal goal scorer for South End. And for someone like myself, he made my game easy because I just knew as long as I got that little space to whip a ball in, I knew Brett Angel was going to get on the end of it. And, you know, I, I, I'm privileged that I provided him with, with enough um, crosses for him to score. But, yeah, he was a character with his... He had a dry sense of humour, but it, funny, it was funny. But, you know, everyone gave as good as they, they took. Like I said... There was personalities running from the goalkeeper right the way through to the strikers. And like I said, even people that were in the reserve team, um, you know, they were in on it as well. It was just, uh, you know, I think Barry deliberately just brought in people who had big characters. Because I think, again, um, going to places like Sunderland, Middlesbrough, Millwall, you know, um, you, you needed players that can handle that environment. Um, and that's what we did. Do you know what, uh, Ricky? Um, what are you guys up to at the minute? Because uh, it's not going, it's not going very well at Rootsall at the minute, and uh, <laughs> wouldn't mind that back again. Put it that way. Yeah. Um, that, how how far could that team have gone if if everyone stayed together? That core stayed together. Um, look, there was a, there was a decent run in the Anglo-Italian Cup as well. I, you know, I, me- I remember that as a kid. And me and Minan sat in front of Teletext, refreshing the scores every two minutes. I remember, I remember all of it. Oh, honestly, honestly, it's great talking about it, and it's, it's just great um, bringing it all up again. But the heartbreaker did have to come, didn't it, Ricky? You did. Barry Fry left, and then you went to Birmingham as well. And I remember Minan coming and tell me, uh, Ricky, I was gone to Birmingham, and, uh, and uh, Barry Fry, and I was like, oh no, it was just like. <laughs> So I wanted the ground to swallow me up right there and then, you know. But I, I, that's probably what a lot of people felt as well. Ash, how how did that all come about, Ricky? I, I, I'll be honest with you. Funny enough, when I when I when I think of the Anglo Italian Cup, you know, for me, that was the first time I'd ever been on an aeroplane, so it was huge for me. I remember we was going to Florence, and so yeah, that was good times, man. Um, but I tell you the truth, Ash, I didn't want to leave Southend. Truth be known, because. What happened at the time, I signed, I signed for Southend and, you know, by, by October, November, because I think when Barry left, um, I think it was coming to near the end of the year. Now, I, I, you know, we played all the big teams by this stage. Um, I was Southend's leading goal scorer. I, I couldn't tell you how much goals I assisted. Um, and so my stock went up. You know, Southend bought me for 150000 and... At the time, I think I was worth maybe about a million pounds. And so, you know, I played against a lot of the big players that had maybe come down from the Premiership into the Championship. And naturally, I, I, I just had a young family and, and I, I wanted a house. I wanted to, you know, lay down some roots somewhere. And so I went to the club. I went to Vic Jobson and at that stage, it was Peter Taylor. 
that that was the manager when Barry Fry left. And so I went to Peter Taylor and I explained to him, I said, look, you know, um, this is my situation. This is what I would like. You know what I mean? Uh, uh, my partner just had a child. I would like to be able to kind of just get a house. Um, I think I've done well. Um, my stock's gone up. Um, can I just have an increase on my wages so I can, you know, go to go and get myself a house? And about two, three days later, it came back. Vic Jobson said to Peter Taylor, no. And I thought to myself, you know, I've been there nearly a year. I've done fantastically well. There's no denying the fact that I had done well enough to be able to, to, to get a new contract because I was playing against players that were on like five, six thousand pounds and more. And I wasn't asking for that yeah. because I knew I was still new to the game, but I wasn't breaking the bank at Southend. I believe that Southend could have given me a pay rise, so I could have got a house. But the fact that he didn't even want to even negotiate, you know, that's what upset me the most. And so I don't know how, but, you know, once that decision was made, it was literally a day or two. And, you know, I just got a phone call from Barry. Well, he obviously heard what had happened. And he says, Rick, look, come up here, man. Big club. You know, I think you can do great things up here. And I felt at the time Southend didn't do enough to, to want to keep me. They didn't show that they wanted to keep me here. They didn't show that they wanted to build on, on what we'd done. Um, and, yeah, I think Vic Jobson, he just uh, he made the wrong call there. Um, not just for myself, but there was other players there that was going in for a contract. Because, again, you've got to remember, we were sitting third in the championship. And I believe, trust me when I tell you this, Ash, if we'd have stayed together, we'd have been in the premiership. Easy. Easy. Because at that time, we were just coming into our own. And as they normally what they say, when you get to Christmas, where you tend to be placed at Christmas, you tend to be there or thereabouts anyway by the end of the season. And like I said, we were battering teams like Derby. Do you know what I mean? Middlesbrough, Sunderland. We beat up Millwall the first their first game on their new their new den stadium. They were celebrating before they even knew what happened to them. By the time they knew what happened to them, we was in the changing room just like laughing and joking. We battered teams. You know, we didn't just scrape through. We battered teams, battered them. And so I think if we stayed together, we'd have done the impossible and, 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 and got promoted. And I suppose that's my, I, I, that's my one kind of, uh, one little regret. I don't tend to have most regrets, but that one there, I wish we had stayed together. I wish Baz kind of just said, you know what, let me just see at the rest of the season with Southend. And, and see where it takes us. Um, because there's no doubt that once Barry left, um, something broke. Something broke and, you know, results just wasn't going our way. But again, the reality was, I didn't want to leave Southend. I was playing some of the best football of my career. I loved the fans at Southend. Uh, I loved the camaraderie we had. And I didn't want to break that. I wanted that to continue. But Vic Jobson, he, he wasn't forward thinking. Yeah, um, so we all did. I mean, we all we all wanted that team to stay together. Brett Brett Angel went off to Everton as well. That's right. I think what the I think I mean obviously I was a kid at the time, but now when you look back, you realise um, and you get to sort of know football politics a bit better as you grow older. You you are obviously clearly as as Stan Collymore was as well. Clearly seen as a, as a money maker um, for the club, which is a shame. I, I I'm, I'm of the theory of of teams building and staying together, even if it takes five or six years. You know, yeah. stay together, build together, 
you know, move forward together. You can't just have players that like light up the world for one season or two seasons and then and then they go again. Do you know what I mean? You can't you can't you can't really build a sort of dynasty like that, you know. So no, I mean I mean that's a shame that happens. Um the guy to all our listeners are South End fans as well. You've heard it from Ricky's mouth, he didn't want to leave. He didn't want to leave. He was pushed out of the club. There we go, right? But we'll, we'll, we'll put that to a side. We all move on. Um, how, was your, how was your time at St. Andrews? Um, you you uh, played in the Football League trophy final, didn't you, as well? So, And, you, and you're well-liked. You, you, I spoke to Birmingham fans as well, and especially on Twitter. I've seen some replies as well. You, you, were, you were popular there, Ricky. You, another place you are really popular at. Yeah, if I'm honest... If I'm if I'm brutally honest, um, when I first went there, it 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 didn't start off well, Ash, and I, I blame Barry for that, <laughs> you know, because Barry, what I learned <laughs> when Barry went into Karen Brady and the the Gold Brothers to get money to buy me, you know, he built me up to be a striker because the season, my first season at Southend, I scored 15 goals, which the only person that scored more goals than me that season was Ryan Giggs, so. I think when Barry now went in to, to to get the money to buy me, he went in there and said, yeah, he's a great striker. Look, he got 15 goals last season. He's exactly what we need. And then when he bought me and I was playing on the left, my natural position, I think the fans couldn't figure it out because the fans were waiting for goals and they couldn't figure out why I'm on the wing. And so me personally, I felt it, it started off a little bit rocky. Well, it would do because of my first game, I scored the first goal against Cambridge, everything going well, and then I, I, I scored an own goal and the game was nil-nil. So uh, it couldn't have started off any worse than that. But I think it took a couple of games, uh, I say a couple, probably about eight, nine games when they kind of realised what kind of player I was because after one or two interviews, I kind of broke it down. That, Listen, you know, I'm a winger. Look at my history. I provide goals. The fact that I, I get on the end and score goals is a bonus, but I provide goals. And so it, it took a while for me to build up that relationship uh, with the St. Andrews fans. But eventually, I think they appreciated what kind of player I was and started to warm to me. Um, the difficulty the difficulty was, now obviously with a bigger club, Barry had a bigger budget. Um, and therefore, he was able to, 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 to work with lots more players. Um, so I was dealing with a different Barry Fry. You see, at South End, obviously the budget's smaller, so you know you've got to work with the players that you got there. Anyone will tell you in sports when you know you're playing, you can prepare properly, physically, mentally. You know, when I was at South End, I knew I was going to play, and so I knew how to kind of just keep myself in good shape throughout the week. At Birmingham, I think you know if the results didn't go well, Barry Fry would be chopping and changing. And at one stage, we had nearly 52 players on the books. You know, so sometimes you don't even know if you're playing until you come in on a Saturday afternoon. And for most players, that's not the right way to prepare. And so I was dealing with a different barrier in the sense that, you know what I mean, I might get three, four games and then I might get dropped, you know, if I didn't play too well um, and then come back in again. And that stop, start, stop, start, it was a difficult um, kind of routine to get into. So... I did play some good games. Yeah, we won the league that year. Um, you know, I scored some pivotal goals and, you know, we went to Wembley, which was a great experience. Um, but if I'm honest, I could have done better. Um, you know, I'm not going to lay it all on 
the system and and everything. Um, but yeah, I, I felt that you know um, I could have I could have applied myself a little bit more better. And then again, I'm, I might be being hard on myself because again, you know, relocation, relocating to a new area, you know, um, not knowing no one in Birmingham and just coming into a new team. It takes time to gel, and sometimes in football you don't actually get that time. People want you to hit the floor running. Um, but I think you know overall, my time at Birmingham, I think people appreciated the kind of a player I was and, and what I brought to the team. And so I, I feel that I can leave with my head held high. But if I'm honest, um, I could have done better because I think Southend obviously saw what I could do, and and I was still young. Um, you know, I think I could have given a lot more if I'd have had um, probably just a consistent run of games to really, you know, do what I, I, I do best. Um, but then I had an injury um, and then Barry got sacked and then Trevor Francis took over. So, you know, it was never like South End, that's for sure. But again, living in Birmingham now, you know, meeting the fans and everything, um, I, I'm proud. I can hold my head up high because I know I'm a little bit more critical and hard on myself, but the feedback that I've got from a lot of fans is that they respected what I what I stood for. Um, and I think, again, my background, my life story, my lifestyle, many football fans connect with that because, hey, you know, I'm coming from, you know, a broken family, working class, and, you know, I never hide that fact. I'm proud of where I come from, and I think that endeared me to a lot of the St. Andrew fans. Um, so... I say I could have done better. A lot of people say I've done okay. Yeah, I mean, I spoke to Birmingham fans before. They're like, that they enjoyed you while you were there. Um, touching back what you said about Barry Fry as well, I think, for, for, judging by what you're saying, that maybe it was too big a job for him. Maybe he is a, he is a small club man. I mean, he done, a, he done well with Peterborough, became chairman of Peterborough. Maybe he is a sort of South End man, a Peterborough man sort of thing, but it's not a... Yeah, a would, bigger club sort of guy. Do you know what I, I mean? I would, um, and and that's yeah. Sorry, go on, Ricky. No, I I would agree with that without without being disrespectful. I would agree that because again, I went on loan to Peterborough and I scored eight goals in sixteen games. So so you start yeah. thinking, well, hold on a minute, what was different? Well, it was almost like going back to the same regime at South End, isn't it? Yeah. You know, so yeah, for me, what totally. I what I realize about myself is that I need. It's not that I'm looking for preferential treatment. If I'm playing well enough, then I expect to play. But that helps me for Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Do you know what I mean? Not that I was living reckless, but, you know, I just... Once you know you're playing, your thoughts can just... You can just relax and just go out there and know that, you know, a manager's going to give you the time to make your mistakes because he's believing that you will rectify mistakes. As opposed to when you know that you're making two mistakes, all of a sudden the manager might be feeling the pressure because Birmingham is a bigger club, you know, you know, we was playing in front of 23, 24,000 people every week. So the expectations are higher. And, you know, I think if Barry Fry is honest, he, he will admit that maybe, yeah, you know, it was a big job. And with it, sometimes he probably made decisions a little bit more rash than he would normally because he's feeling the pressure himself to, to get results. And, and I think that went against a lot of players there at the time. Um, but again, you know, I went along to Peterborough for three months and I scored eight goals in 16 games. So it does make you wonder. Yeah. Um, look, I mean, Barry Fry and Southend was a, a, match, a match made in heaven, so to speak. Um, it, it doesn't always work out when 
when them kind of managers and big characters that are suited more to lower league clubs go to go to big clubs. Uh, you know, I've seen it loads of times. But you know, Barry Barry gave us all some great memories. Um, so I, I'll never ever forgive that. I never forgive. So I never forget that. So to speak. So 1995 wasn't it, Ricky? Football League trophy final. I believe you got the assist for Paul Tate, Mister Birmingham City himself, Paul Tate. Yeah. To for the winner. Yeah, I mean, and 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 the thing about it is, at that stage, Ash, I'd literally been out of prison four years, and so. I kind of look back when we walked out at Wembley. There was seventy six thousand um, at, at the old Wembley, um, and fifty fifty five thousand were Birmingham fans. Now, as you know, man, I grew up watching FA Cup final every year, watching the whole program from morning until the game finished. And so you watch Wembley Way, you watch the fans walking down Wembley Way, you watch the whole thing. And so for me, that that was a, a, a moment etched in my in my memory because uh to get to play at Wembley you know when you think of the thousands of of, of players that never got to play there uh for me to get there four years after being being out of prison you know it was monumental for me and um I remember saying to the reporter when he said to me Rick you know how would you like the game to get obviously you want to win but what's your perfect scenario I said well my perfect scenario is obviously to score but if I can't score I want to be able to um have a hand in the result and 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 that's what happened, man. It was you know it was sudden death, the first time um, that this 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 sudden death was introduced to the game. So we played the normal time, we played extra time, then it went to sudden death. And so yeah, um, you know, uh, being able to cross the ball um, and and assist Paul Tate was a wonderful feeling because my mum don't come to much football matches, but she was there with some of, of my family and that. And so, yeah, it was a great occasion. All I remember, man, is just walking up the 39 steps because I was counting it because, you know, that when you think of the history of players that have walked up that steps and I'm sitting, I'm sitting to myself, boy, me, Ricky, old ex-criminal boy, you get to walk up these steps. I was like, yeah, man, I'm going to enjoy it. And so, yeah, the occasion was wonderful. You know, I'm, I'm so grateful. Honestly, I'm so grateful that now when I look back or when I talk about it, uh, I, I'm, I'm so grateful that I've got these memories to kind of just share and to watch now because remember you can watch it on YouTube back then there weren't no thing called social media you know so you know I thank God for social media as well sometime if I want to just sit down and just kind of reminisce you know you can go on YouTube and watch it so yeah it was a wonderful occasion wonderful occasion I just wish I had that kind of occasion with South End though because um, I think the fans at South End the club and just the way the vibe was then, I think we deserved something like that, you know, a trip to Wembley. But it wasn't to be. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, got cl- got quite close in the Anglo-Italian Cup anyway. I think, is it semi-final, I think? Do you know, I'm, I'm, going, I'm going off pure memory here, mate. Um, so, uh, semi-final, I think? I think quarter-final? Quarter-finals. Um, I think it was the quarter-finals, but it might be the semi-final. We got close. Uh, put it this way, people were dreaming, so we were close. We we were very close, um, but I can't remember. <laughs> we'll, 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 we'll say semi final. Any other, any other shrimpers that are listening, just uh, just put us right if you, <laughs> um, in in, the, in uh, on Twitter when after you've heard this. Uh, I'll probably go on Wikipedia straight after and, and, and try and jog my memory. I think it's semi final, but anyway, um, you know, after Birmingham, a couple of loan spells and that, and then uh, you ended up at. <laughs> 
you ended up at Rill in Wales, Ricky. Now this one's this one interests me because was it going there? Was it just a change of scenery you wanted, or did you think you know this is quite late on in your career? Obviously, right at the end, I'm talking now. Um, obviously, Rill can qualify for the UEFA Cup through the Welsh League if they finish in the top two or three. Yeah. Did you see that as an opportunity at the end of your career, thinking this is this is a route into Europe here? No, you know, the, this, this... no. The truth, the truth is, Ash, um, because you've got to remember, um, while I was at Birmingham, I um, I done my all my knee ligaments. I done my cruciate, my cartilage, my I done everything. Um, and although I can play football, I wasn't the same again because it was my left leg, and my left leg was my golden one, wasn't it? And the kind yeah. of twists and turns and trickery that I would do with my left leg, my left foot, and you know, crossing the ball with the outside of the boot and everything. I couldn't do that fluently anymore because although I could run and everything, I was still feeling a lot of pain in my knee. And so the truth be known, um, when I went out on loan to, to, to real, they, they kind of not, not, not being patronizing, but they kind of begged me just to come because I was saying, listen, man, I'm not the same player. And you know, fans, they're, they're, they're merciless. You know, they don't know that you're carrying injury or that you're in pain. They just want to see you giving your war for the club. And so for me, when I done the injury, I was kind of happy with my story. I was like, Rick, you know, I came out of prison 1990. Gosh, played for Orient, played for Southend, became Birmingham City's most expensive player. I'm living in a nice house, got a nice car. I'm not going back to prison again. I, I was happy, so I was good to go. You know what? Call it a day. I'm happy. I'm content because my overall purpose when I came out of prison Ash, was that I'm not going back to prison again. And I said to myself, if I come out and I can play non-league football and earn a little 300 pound and then go and work in a factory and get another 300 pound, that's 600 bills a, a week. I'll be happy with that. Well, I've got more than that. I've got more than that. So when I done my injury, I was cool. I was happy. I've got a little money that I can sit down and figure out my next move. So I was calling. So when Will came calling, I, I said to them, no, nah, I'm, not, I'm not interested. But then they just said, look, you know, just give it a go. Give it a go. And they kind of, we kind of kept having this conversation. And, you know, and so when I said, okay, you know, I only played, what, two, three games and that was it. But I wasn't the right player. I wasn't the same player. And, you know, I'm an all or nothing guy. If I can't do something well, I'd rather just knock it on the head. Um, you know, because in football terms, Fans are looking for the Ricciotto that they've seen what I was doing at Oren and at Southend and at Birmingham. I know within myself, Ash, I can't do that. And the one thing I'm not is not I'm not a fraud. Do you know what I mean? If I can't do yeah. it, I can't do it. And so after two, three games, I could I, I said, I said, guys, I'm not and they offered me good money. Do you know what I mean? But I can't do yeah. it. I can't do it. So for me, it wasn't it didn't have anything to do with football or or uh, UEFA Cup or anything. It's like they just they kind of badgered me into kind of just give it a go, man. But I knew mm -mm, I'm not the same player. I can run, but I can't do the tricks and cross the ball and and do the things that I normally do naturally. Because every time I do it, oh, I can feel the pain, you know. But I said, all right, I'll give it a go. But after three games, I just wasn't happy, so I just didn't bother go back. Yeah, at least you stay true to yourself. At least you're honest with them. Um, I don't know any real fans, but if they're <laughs> If any any real fans from North Wales listening it that are going to be listening to this, um, I'll, I'll I'll tag the Twitter handle in. Um, 
I'm sure you appreciate what Ricky's just said there. Pure honesty, transparency with you guys right there. He didn't have it anymore in his legs. So there you go. It is what it is. Uh, Ricky, um, I'm going to ask you like, a bit of fun now. bit of fun question. Mad, what's the maddest thing you've ever seen on a football pitch? You know, be on the, it could be in the crowd. It could be on the pitch. It could have been in the dressing room, um, actually, as well. So what's the craziest thing you've seen, you've seen just to... Just to end our end our football part the of the craziest part of the interview. The craziest yeah. thing. Gosh, what is it? Um gosh, that's a hard one. Um it could be absolutely anything. Like a streaker, it could be it, it could be absolutely anything. <laughs> like <laughs> any anything. What is my goodness? That's a difficult one. Um Gosh, my head's gone blank. What is the craziest thing I've seen on football? On the football pitch, changing one. Gosh. Or a mad, or a mad tackle, or the worst tackle, or anything like that. You know, any any fights or well, craziest fights. Well, if I if I if I say crazy thing, I think the only thing that really jumps jumps to mind is just the arguments we used to have at half time in the changing room. They were legendary. I mean. Um, you know, Barry Five would say one or two things, and man, we just give it back to him. I remember, I remember when I was definitely Southend. It was just always carnage. In the in, <laughs> <laughs> it was carnage at half at half time. Barry would come in there, he'll say what he wants to say, and then some of the players would just have it back at Barry Fry. But then you go back on the pitch, and then we win the game, and then you come in, and there's such euphoria. Do you know what I mean? And and I think that's what we love about Barry. You can call him every name under the sun, but if we've won. He'll forget it. And I remember when we played Liverpool, when I, when I just signed for Birmingham, and we played Liverpool at Anfield, and he put me up front, and Razor Ruddock was coming through me, man. Every time I got the ball, he was coming through me, so much so that every time I was even running towards the ball, I was wincing because I was looking for Razor Ruddock. And so at halftime, I had a stinker, and the coming in Barry Fry, he, he gave it to me, and honestly... I lost it, man. And the filth that came out of my mouth, I must have called him every name under the sun, man. And then he put me on my natural <laughs> position and then I scored a screamer. And so I'm just running down the line, running towards Baz, man. And then Baz is there and he's like, effing and blinding. And I'm looking at him. Now I'm cussing him. I'm saying, you this and you that. You see, if you'd have put me on the pitch and I'm cussing him, but Barry Fires is looking at me going, yeah. You know, so I suppose <laughs> if I'm thinking about bizarre moments nothing really jumps out but yeah when I look back halftime team talks that was legendary man that was legendary and uh, you know <laughs> Barry Fry has no filter so he says it as he thinks it and sometimes it's just the look I see on certain players faces it's like when Barry Fry says something to them it's like me and then they will just freak out and then we're, we're calming him down and then we're calming that one down and then there's other... It was carnage sometimes, but that was passion. That was passion and we always got the job done. We always got the job done. Um, so, yeah, for me, when I think back, funny moments, it's, uh, yeah, those team talks, halftime team talks, if things ain't going well, man, it was uh, total carnage, man. <laughs> uh, and do you know what? That's That's probably why... You will, especially probably the young players in the dressing room as well. That, that's why they probably respected Barry Fry. That's why he probably gave you all for him. Yeah. Because you knew you can give it a bit back and forth and stuff like that. And, and it's forgotten afterwards. It's all it's all move on, right? You know, it, 
things that you can't beat people that have got no filter in my but people that are black and white so to speak as i call it they, they don't do the fluffy stuff in the middle yeah yeah, yeah. It, uh, they say it how it is that's that's what people want that's what people like that's what people respect Thing, yeah, because all the people that do the fluffy stuff in the in the middle, yeah. they're normally the ones you got to watch out for. The, in my not, opinion, but the, right. but the thing is, Ash, is you, have, you have to remember, most players, the majority of players, we're coming from working class families, but you know, we're coming from the streets, and so you know, on the streets, there's no filter. You know what I mean? You've got to say it as it is, and 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 you've got to be big enough to be able to handle that, knowing that it's only happening because there's a cause that we're working towards. Do you know what I mean? And and, yeah. and that cause is is to get three points, and so there's there's no time to be be molly cuddled. Do, do you know what I mean? If something has to be said, if you look at most people that you know, most street people, people who are working class that grow up and and, and know how to grind for a, a living, right? Just give me the truth. I can handle the truth. Do you know what I mean? And even if it's said in a rough way, you can still handle it. Give you a bit back, but once the the job is done. Everything's forgotten, and 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 that was Barry Fry, and uh, a lot of managers you couldn't do that with, and that's why I think a lot of managers they don't like players with character. They, they like a lot of yes men, and there's a lot of managers out there. Um, they were yes men, but I think with Baz, yeah, he'll give it, but he took it, um, and like I said, once the job is done, it is literally forgotten, um, and and that's that, you know, that's what the streets are like, and and that's what we're familiar with, and. You know, fans would even appreciate that. Definitely. Um, by the way, Ricky, I was, a, I was a chef before the pandemic hit and I, you know, uh, sort of went out of work. The hospitality sector where I live in Scotland now um, it went down and I've been nothing since. The chef world, but from what you're saying, the chef world and the football world and the football changing room are so similar. Yeah. It is unreal. Like, you, you, you can't do the fluffy stuff in the middle in, in, in a professional kitchen without it. It's either... You're effing this, you're effing that, or nothing. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's no either you're mate, that was brilliant, or you're an effing this. Yeah, there's no, there's nothing in between, and that's that's probably why I stayed in the, in the trade so long because I, I was I was around people that that had that about them, and it's it's full of people. Yeah. <laughs> Believe me. Um. Yeah, but it's a, a lot of similarities. It's it's hearing from what you're saying as well. So, and again, it's a, a lot of lads that are working class lads, a lot of lads in the kitchens I work with a hell of a lot of lads that, that just literally come out of prison yeah. the day before yeah. and, and walked into a kitchen job because no other, not a lot of trades would just yeah, be like, exactly. yeah, come on, we'll, we'll teach you on the job. Do you know what I mean? And get a job straight away. So I, so I worked with, you know, um, prisoners and, and, and people like that, or ex-prisoners, so to speak, um, pretty much every day of my, of my work in life. And yeah, it, the, the similarities are exactly the same. Yeah. Now, Life after football, Ricky. Um, I want to promote what you've what you're doing in the community and also in the church as well. Um, if you want to just tell our listeners a bit about that, what you've done after football. Yeah, well, what you've done in- for me, I think it it was while I was playing football because again, you know, you don't come out of five prison sentences and start getting paid good money for what you absolutely love doing without thinking, gosh, what am I going to do when my career finishes? Because at that time. I was at a mainstream school at 14. I had no education. Um, and so, you know, life had been very kind to me playing football. Um, but, yeah, the nagging question was always, you know, what am I going to do after my career finishes? And so, for me, it was a natural progression for me for obviously wanting to to work with offenders because it's what I understand, it's what I knew. 
personally, um, you know, I left a lot of Rikiotos in prison. By that, what I mean, I left a lot of talent in prison because there, there is a lot of talent in prison, even today. And so I, I kind of said to myself, I don't know how I'm going to um, make it happen, but I just know I want to work with offenders because I, I understand it. And having turned my life around, I felt I would have been best served trying to inspire the next generation coming up. And so after my career finished, I joined the probation service because one of my cousins, he worked for the probation service in Reading and he told me the, the job that he does. And one of the things that he does was called program facilitators where you, you deliver um, accredited programs to offenders. So, you know, um, depending on the crime, it could be drink. Um, and, and there's a program called OSAP program. So that's dealing with substance misuse. There's your acquisitive crime program that deals with normal crime then you've got your drink drivers program you've got your your um violent programs and so working with the probation and having qualified for all those particular programs i started working hands-on with offenders doing these programs and obviously you know being able to share my life and incorporate my experiences with these programs meant that i was a uh, i was a great hit uh with these offenders because i was probably one of only a few if any in the probation service that can really give the offenders a good kick up the backside and they knew where I was coming from. Do you know what I mean? And so I gained a lot of respect. But some of the programs could be condescending, you know, and so it was at that point I realised that, you know, I can kind of develop my own programmes. And, and at the time, this is where I met my wife because my wife worked for the probation and she was passionate about wanting to help offenders. And so we kind of said, you know what, let's go and write our own programmes. And that's what we've done. We started a company called Living Experience Connections um, and then uh, got the probation to start giving us contracts to deliver our bespoke programs in probation. And then we've delivered it in the prisons. And so I've always kept myself around the criminal justice arena uh, since I retired. Um, but over the last maybe 14 years, I've been doing my own company and, and working in the probation service. And so um, that that keeps me very hands-on with the offenders. Um, and then uh, I became a born-again Christian and I went to study theology and got a 2-1 degree in theology. Um, and at present, I'm the pastor of our Birmingham church. We're one church in seven locations. One of my best friends from the age of 13, he started a church in um, the late 80s um, called ARC. ARC is an acronym which stands for A Radical Church. He, he started that church in Forest Gate and then we reconnected about seven years ago. Um, and so there's seven branches now. We've got churches in Walthamstow, Sydenham, Thurrock. Obviously, we started Ark Birmingham Church. Um, and so I'm the pastor of that church. It's going well. I'm, I'm able to do pastoral work within the prisons. And again, that keeps me um, hands-on with the offenders from a spiritual perspective. So I feel like, you know, I'm living another boyhood dream. Um, having come out and played football, um, you know, my next passion was to to work with offenders and to to help them to to have the confidence first to see what transformation looks like because I believe that's what I represent now. I believe, you know, me being able to turn my life around, I want to give offenders a bird's eye view of what transformation looks like. Um, and I just want to be part of that process of helping them to 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 make the transition. I'm writing a book at the moment. Um I'm writing my autobiography, although I've got to man manage my time more. But the name of the book is going to be called From Prison Pitch to the Pulpit. Um, and I'm starting a not-for-profit company 
called the three Ps based around that same transition from prison pitch to the pulpit. And what I want to do now is help offenders make that transition from pitch could be the, the world, the environment, um, the marketplace, and then the pulpit is the marketplace where they will help others. Um, so obviously the lockdown has kind of uh, hindered uh, what I had planned for 2020. But I mean, no doubt that, you know, once we get back to normal, then I can continue doing what I've been doing within the probation service and within the young offenders institutions. What a fantastic story. What, a, you know, it it's really taken me back. And I bet, I bet the people you work with, Ricky, really take to you as well, because you've lived it, you've done it, you've been there. You're, you're not, you're not textbook taught. You're you're from these areas that they're from. You've you've been through what they're that what they've been yeah, through. You're not a, you're not a te- you're not you're not a textbook no, counselor. Absolutely. It's simple absolutely. as that. Absolutely, I think um and and you know that works to my advantage, um, and and I, and I try to that's exactly what I just try to do, give them real life instances of what I went through and how I was able to transition from crime because when I'm when I delivered the program with the probation honestly there were times when I was delivering it to the offenders but I'm sitting there saying to myself gosh that's what I done like 15 years ago without knowing these skills these tools what you can use you know what I mean um and so you know I believed in the programs and I think with offenders they need to know that you're for real you know, and unfortunately, there's a lot of people, a lot of probation officers and stuff that work in the, 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 the criminal justice environment, but they are textbook. And offenders know that because offenders ain't stupid. They know who they can shook and, and they know who's for real. And so for me, you know, offenders are like putty in my hands, not because I'm trying to embarrass them, but because I, I understand the mindset. And so when I work with them, they know just through maybe one or two words that I may use that... You've been in prison before. I say, well, what's that got to do with you? <laughs> you know, I kind of muck about with them with that. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, once I let them know who I am and, and where I'm coming from, yeah, um, they, they just acquiesce. Um, and again, for me, you know, seeing people start to get it, seeing people get that light bulb moment and, and believe that they can change, you know what I mean, um, and, and do good in their lives, you know that you, you can't put a price on that, and, and and that's what I live for. And then the same thing is is spiritually, you know, just helping helping individuals to to connect spiritually helps, and especially in this time where we're dealing with a lot of gang affiliation and a lot of deaths and everything. A lot of these youth they need that spiritual counselling just to overcome some of the trauma um, that they've gone through. So yeah, I'm just trying to use every ounce of my experience, Ash, to to really just pour into the next generation because. What I realised is that all the success I had, it wasn't really for me. It was for the next generation to come up. And my success don't mean nothing if I'm not trying to lift somebody else up. Do you know what I mean? So it's not about me just sitting on my person and saying, look at what I used to do. That don't mean nothing if, if I'm not helping the next generation. So, uh, again, I thank God that, you know, these doors are opening. You know what I mean? That I can walk around the prison and, and you know, the place that used to lock me up, I'm now locking the doors behind me. It's crazy, but um, yeah. it works. Hundred um, percent. I like to say, as, as a citizen of this earth, thank you for your humanity and compassion in 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 that um, in that retrospect for for giving these lads and, and and girls a chance, you know, to to turn their life around and 
talking to them and sharing your experiences. It's 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 incredible. It, it really, really Thank is. You. you know, they they say they say to never meet your heroes as you'll be disappointed. Well, ladies and gents, I've just bucked that trend. I've just spoke to mine and I'm over the moon. I really am. Ricky, thank you so much for agreeing to speak to me. It means a lot to me personally for many reasons. And I'm sure our listeners will have loved hearing your story as well. Honestly, they really would. You are, you are a fan's favourite to many, no matter what club they supported. Orient fan, Southend fan. But I'm not making this just all about Southend, guys. Um, you played for other clubs as well whatever club they support and please carry on with the fantastic work you're doing in the community Ricky I'm, I'm sure you will good luck with the book as well when it's out guys you heard what he said you heard what it's going to be about so please buy it I'll certainly be buying it anyway I'll probably be probably be there at the book signing to be honest you can have a signed one all on me man trust me don't worry about that I'll let you know not a problem I tell, you, I tell you what Ricky I, 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 I thank you for the the, uh, the offer I'd like to pay for it and if that money can go towards, I don't know, uh, maybe a food bank or, or yeah. something to do with the to do with the community or the church towards the church. I'd like to do that, please, mate. Um, and also as, as a thank you for coming on and, and speaking to me. Honestly, you, you don't know what this means to me. I really don't. Um, guys, we're, we're on all the platforms. We're on Anchor, Spotify, Google and um, Apple Podcasts. Please give us a listen. Uh, retweet when you can. We're on Twitter, Cathedral underscore Sport. Upcoming shows, we've got Dial Square FC coming on next week. They're the breakaway club from Arsenal. The fans have formed their own club. They've had enough of the greed of the Premier League. They've gone back to their roots. Dial Square FC are coming on. We've got Paul Venice coming on, uh, ex-undefeated K1 fighter. He's uh, uh, ex-world champion as well, undefeated. He's going to be starring as Lee Duffy in the upcoming Lee Duffy film. Um, Calvin Shan, ex-Peter head player, uh, ex-Muscle Brow Athletic Manager. And we've also got Robin from the fan-owned club, KSK Beveren in Belgium coming up um, all on the show. So it's, it's, we've got a lot going on, guys. Honestly, it's a busy December. Again, Ricky, have a fantastic weekend. And Merry Christmas to you and your family, mate. I hope 2021 is a lot, uh, lot better for you and your family, mate. Honestly. Cheers, pal. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you, man. And uh, likewise, have a great Christmas and just keep yourself safe, man. Will do. 